tribes, looking at those communities that many of us, we get to choose some of them, and some of them, you had no choice in the matter. You were literally thrust into the family of origin that you came from. So we're going to talk about that today. Uh, but before we start the series, I wanted to celebrate something that happened last Sunday that was so incredible. Last week, seven people started a brand new relationship with Jesus, which is pretty awesome. So uh, if you weren't here or if you missed uh, our July series, Irresistible, check it out on our live stream. Uh, but we are excited to look at, uh, for the month of August, the, the circles that we find ourselves in. As Kay said, today we're talking about family of origin. We all came from a family. And all of our families, uh, your experience with family, uh, your maybe even immediate feelings as we mentioned that we're talking about family, could be very mixed. Some of us have a very great experience with our family. Uh, it's been the most positive, influencing circle of relationships in our life. Others of us, not so much. Uh, perhaps it's even been difficult or painful, and even for the next 30 minutes as we talk about it, it might even bring up things in your story, spaces of grief or spaces of disappointment or spaces of uh, longing that, that were unfulfilled as you were a child. Uh, and so I think it's really important, however, that we engage these topics because the reality is we're going to discover today is that all of us are influenced by our family of origin, uh, whether they were positively influenced, uh, negatively influenced, even absence of our family of origin, certain members of our family of origin, have profound impact in your life. And so today, as we look at this uh, specific part of our families, the question that kind of comes to mind, right, in the midst of all of the good and the bad and the complicated feelings that we all have around family, uh, is what do you do with the imperfect family that God gave you? What do you do with the imperfect family that God gave you, because all of us come from an imperfect family. I do, you do, even we're going to learn today, Jesus did. All of us have family, and none of them were perfect. I believe most parents try to do everything they can, the best of their ability, and they're figuring it out as they go, uh, especially if you, like me, are the oldest. We were the guinea pigs, right? So our parents are winging it. Uh, some of you are nodding because you're elbowing your high school student next to you because uh, they're your guinea pig. Uh, but, you know, all of us have uh, an experience with family where we realize our family is imperfect, right? And that's actually a really beautiful and good realization to get to. But it comes with some baggage. It comes with some conversations. It comes with some work that we have to do to kind of grow up as we engage in our family. And, and not only that, that your, uh, your family of origin that impacts your life, that actually shows up even in your decision making right now, you are also not only from a family of origin, but you are someone else's future family of origin. Let that sink in for a second. It's a little scary, right? All of us are going to be someone's parent, grandparent, aunt, uncle, friend. You know, we all have these relationships that come in life where we influence the next generations. And whether you realize it or not, whether you are intentional about it or not, we all are influenced by our family and we all have the power to influence our future family. I mean, I can just picture it right now. Stela, our daughter who's three, and Layton, uh, who is uh, 22 months, not almost two, 22 months. I learned that this week, uh, made that mistake. 22 months. Some of you guys, you'll get that later. You're like, what's the problem? I, I can do math. Yeah, you're right. It's not about math, right? It's about feeling. Uh, a 22-month-old, you know, one day in their future, 20-something years from now, they're going to be sitting in a church just like this, and someone's going to start talking about family of origin and, this, and the scars and the things that happen in their life, and I'm going to want to whisper in the ear, no, no, absolutely not. You know, but even our kids, 
right? Come from an imperfect family. I should know I'm in it. And so we all have this sense that there is something we have to wrestle with because none of our family pictures are perfect. And in fact, when we talk about these different relationships, we're going to talk about family, uh, friendships, marriage, parenting. The good news is, is that the Bible has lots of insight and, and relational advice that we should learn from and glean from and apply in our life. Lots of great insight. But the Bible has very few pictures of really healthy families. Like if you want to feel better about whatever dysfunction you're experiencing in your family, just take a gander and read any of the family stories in the Old Testament. Like you will have a lot of hope, right? Because uh, there's hope and space for all of us in this situation. Because, I mean, literally, you like you read stories of Moses and, or Jacob or D even David or, or even some of the more recent stories as we move through the scriptures. You're like, man. My family's not so bad. We kind of put the fun in dysfunctional, you know, and you kind of walk through that, right? So when people say all the time, I want to have a biblical family, I'm like, really? Which one? <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, you know, so, but we're, as we explore this, right, we all have this space where we come from an imperfect family, we create imperfect families, but there's something that I think God has for all of us, for you, no matter where you're at, whether, again, you're a senior in high school or a senior citizen, that we can do some work coming out of what we're going to learn together this morning that can help us relate to our family, family of origin, and our present family and moving forward by looking at the past, looking back, so that we can move forward because we all are someone's future family of origin. So uh, to cut the tension in the room, because uh, everybody's getting a little nervous, I thought I would show you a picture of my family. This is my family. Uh, that's my wife, Katie. She was just up here on stage. She's a babe. That's Stela. Uh, she's our three-year-old. That's Layton. Yeah, they're fun, right? They're just adorable. Uh, and then uh, here's the OG Dougalby family picture. Yes. Check out that sweater. And notice, matching socks. I don't know what you were doing in 1984. I was killing the game, right? So uh, that's my mom and dad. They're probably watching on live stream from Europe, uh, having a good time now that they're empty nesters. Uh, that, again, that sweater, I want it in my size now. It's awesome. The brown shag carpet, I do not want. That, that could stay in the 80s. That was wonderful. Uh, glad that's over, right? So there you go. You're welcome, 1980s Olin Mills classics. Uh, you know, we all have these moments, right, where we have family pictures. And yet we all know family pictures don't represent the realities of our family. Rarely do they represent the predominant story of your house growing up. We actually had a, a family picture when I was about five. Uh, that was me when I was just an only child, uh, what I call the good old days. Uh, and then I had a younger sister and a brother that came along after me. And then we actually had a, a, a picture in our household that we kept just because we thought it was awesome. Uh, that um, this was like way before Instagram and everybody tried to be real. That where I was like five and my sister was like two and she was just not having it. And she was throwing a fit, red, blotchy, big tears. You know, you know like two-year-old tears are just like monumental compared to the size of their face. They're just huge, right? And I think the photographer just like gave up. They're like, this ain't going to happen. Click. Like the girl's not going to be okay. And we kept it for a year just because it was funny because, you know, sometimes family's real. And, and these pictures don't really represent the true story most of the time of what your household might have been like. And that's true for me, right? There's ups and downs. There's curves. There's unexpected bumps and obstacles in the road. And yet all of us, right, all of us have this sense that there's something that we're craving when it comes to our family. There's a sense of stability, a sense of health. We see it throughout the families, uh, you know, in, in our life, our friends' families. We have this comparison that shows up, and we all wonder, what am I supposed to do 
with my imperfect family. And so to do that, I want to look at a passage of Scripture where Paul actually elevates, the Apostle Paul writes to this group of people that are at a church, a uh, little bludgeoning community of Jesus followers in the city of Ephesus. And he writes to them about what it looks like to actually expand our view about family, to, to look at this greater spiritual family that God is inviting us into and see how that can impact and influence us as it relates to our family of origin. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 1. If not, there's a blue Bible uh, right in the seat back pocket directly in front of you. You can grab that. In this Bible, it's on page 567. Uh, but as you're turning there, we're, you don't have to like look at it quite yet because we're going to take a little bit of a, a long uh, cultural history lesson as we get there because it's really important to understand what was happening in Ephesus and the culture into which Paul begins to contextualize this Jesus message, this story that God came and gave himself for everyone so that we all could have a new start and a new future to restore what was originally intended in us that we broke by our sin. This story that has revolutionized Jerusalem is now making its way throughout the Roman Empire. So 2,000 years ago, Paul is writing to this little group of people, that a church that he started in Ephesus, thousands of miles away from where he's from, and now he finds himself in a Roman jail cell writing to them, encouraging them about this new life that they're supposed to live in. But we have to understand the culture that was surrounding them. Ephesus uh, is a port city on the rim of the Mediterranean Sea in modern-day Turkey. And it was an incredibly, incredibly beautiful city. It was the second largest city in the Roman Empire. Over half a million people were estimated to live in Ephesus. And it was good to be from Ephesus. It was a center of cultural life, a center of intellectual life. Uh, many, many people uh, went there uh, to want to be around what was happening uh, in this city. It, much like San Diego, it's a place where people wanted to be from. It's a place where people wanted to do business, to raise their families, because it was a crown jewel of the Roman Empire. Uh, in Ephesus, what made it such an attractive place uh, was the Temple of Artemis, uh, which looks like this. Uh, it's not there anymore. There's ruins there, but that's a uh, computer rendering, obviously. Uh, pretty amazing. I did it myself. Um, nope. Uh, and so in the center of the city of Ephesus was the Temple of Artemis. And worship of the goddess Artemis was central to the story and the cultural uh, you know, life of people in Ephesus. Artemis, for those of you that uh, don't remember Greek and Roman mythology, uh, was the Roman goddess of fertility and the Roman goddess of the hunt. And so if you were to say grace before a meal, you wouldn't say thanks God for our food. You would say praise be to Artemis. If you got pregnant or someone in your life got pregnant and you were celebrating someone having a baby, you would say praise be to Artemis. This was central to their story. And in uh, Ephesus, uh, this was important all year long, but especially in the month of May when they had what's called the Artemisian Worship Festival, people from all over the Roman Empire would come to Ephesus. The city would swell to almost three times its size, specifically with, Ro with Roman men. Because it was believed in that culture that if you were to come to Ephesus and Roman men would come to Ephesus and celebrate with the Artemisian Worship Festival, one of the practices that they would in, you know, engage in was actually to have sex with prostitutes at the temple. And they did this because they believed in that culture that that would actually bring them goodwill back home in their families. And you might be wondering, well, what do their wives have to say about it? And that would be the wrong question because their wives didn't get a say. The, the Roman Empire was an extraordinarily oppressive culture to women and children, as we're going to discover in just a second. The idea of family in Roman culture is so different than what we would imagine 
in our current context of what family might look like. Roman men would actually brag that they could divorce their wives, one of their wives, uh, simply by turning their back on her. They just walk away, and that's it. No say, no conversation. Many times uh, throughout the culture that we saw that men and, and, and people in that culture would treat women and children as objects of sexual gratification. That women were really simply there to produce children and to keep your household tidy so that as men you could do whatever you want. This was an oppressive culture that showed the true nature of our human story. And yet we still see it in our culture today. Ephesus was also the center of social life, right? As, as the worship of Artemis was there in, as a part of this and it kind of worked into its way to the family, so did the sense that the, the center of intellectual life was a part of Ephesus and the Ephesian culture. The, the Library of Solstice was in Ephesus. It was the third largest library in ancient history, in ancient um, times that we can study. It was kind of like Google, uh, but in real life. Everything was just in one place. And so people would come to Ephesus to study to get all the information. If it was assumed if you were from Ephesus that you were an intellectual elite. They also had large marketplaces there. A huge shopping mall called the Agora that was over three football fields uh, in length. And uh, the Greek word for Agora is translated into English, I believe it's a fashion valley. Uh, and so that was, yeah, there it is. Uh, you know, and, and so this was a place where people would come to buy things that they couldn't afford to impress people they didn't like. Use your imagination, right? Uh, the physicality was very active culture in Ephesus. The, the human physique was something to be worshipped. Uh, physical fitness was central to their culture. Uh, when, when Greeks invented the Olympics and they kind of took a hiatus as they were all uh, destroyed and, and overtaken by the Roman Empire, they reemerged in Ephesus. And so as you walk down the street of modern or uh, ancient Ephesus 2,000 years ago, you would see... Uh, statues of physically fit men and women, that this standard of physical perfection was just blatant in your face as you walked in your normal way. It was just involving and invading your space. You didn't ask for it. It was just there. It showed up on your Instagram feed, seemingly, right? And it just showed up in your life. And there was this sense in which that was the goal everybody in the culture knew they were facing and trying to achieve. And when you didn't meet that physical fitness standard, you were overcome with shame. Imagine that feeling. I know it's difficult for us in summer in Southern California, right? Imagine if you didn't meet up to the standard that you were seen as less than. See, this is the culture to which Paul is writing the book of, of Ephesians. And it's extraordinarily important for us to understand that while that was true then, it's kind of true now. It's kind of true of our culture where women often can be seen as objects of sexual gratification, where intellectual, monetary, and physical standards that are out in the cosmos are ones that we're all trying to attain, and when we miss them, uh, we feel shame and you know, dissatisfaction in our own life. It doesn't take much imagination for us to imagine a culture where all that you focused on was your imperfections. In fact, it's all too normal, but yet this is what Paul was writing to, and he positions and contextualizes the Jesus story into this context for the Ephesians. And so we're going to pick it up in chapter 1, verse 3. It says this, Paul writing to these Jesus followers in this town, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Before I read the next verse, you should know something also about the Ephesian culture. They had in their culture this law called the law of exposure. 
And like I said, this physical expression and this physical uh, worship of the human body was so important that even as people had children, if parents didn't approve of or didn't like the appearance of their child, it was legal for them up to about 10 days after birth to leave them in a place outside of the wall of the city to be exposed to the elements. They would literally abandon their infant child. This is why it was called the law of exposure. And most of the time, on a weekly basis, hundreds and hundreds of children would be left out there and they would die. Occasionally, a few might survive. They would be brought back into the city as slaves or occasionally people would adopt them. Maybe folks that couldn't have children of their own would adopt them into their family. And it's important to know this in Ephesian culture because they were so focused on that what you produce, what people thought of you was what determined your value, that an adopted child had more legal rights than a biological child in Ephesian culture. That if you were left out for the law of exposure and somehow survived and then someone adopted you, they had more legal connection to you than if you actually were born from them as a biological son or daughter, especially if you were a male. The adopted son had more influence and more, you got the entire inheritance. You were the heir apparent of the family. And Paul knows this, and he writes this next line. Even as he, meaning God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in his sight. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. See, in Ephesian culture, your parents chose you about seven to ten days after your birth. And Paul is drawing a stark contrast to the God that we worship, your heavenly father, that says before anything was created that we can see or experience, God actually chose you to be in the highest place of love and connection in his family. When that gets in your soul, if that idea were to take root in our identity, everything changes. Everything changes in our life. Everything changes in how we do family and relationships. Everything would begin to change in our city and our culture. Because you know this to be true. Most of my addictive and most of your addictive tendencies are you trying to prove something to someone that isn't even around anymore. The, the, the reason you run after uh, workplace success or monetary gain, the reason you run after woman after woman after woman, the reason that you try to figure out how to prove something to someone else is because, let's be honest, you never were told as a child, perhaps, that you were already chosen. You were already believed in. You were already welcomed home. Paul tells these new Christians in the city of Ephesus, different than the culture that you experience out there, you need to know Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, meaning Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You cannot earn your way into this new family. You cannot do something to get in, and so therefore you probably can't do anything to get out of the family that God has pre-selected you. God picked you, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, 
which he set forth in Christ. I don't know about you, I've always wondered, okay, if I've started to follow Jesus, what is God's will for me to deal with my imperfect family? Maybe you've asked that question. Paul is about to tell you. Which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Paul clearly draws a distinction between how God treats us and how we so often treat each other, that God chooses you. He decided to adopt you, not because of what you could do for him, but because of how good he is in and of himself. He chose to lavish that goodness on you so that you can, don't miss this, extend that goodness to others, even your parents, your siblings, your son, your daughter, your grandparents. That is God's will for your family. He redefines what this looks like. See, that word that Paul uses there, to unite, is actually better translated to set right. The Greek word there is more of a picture of what a surgeon does when you break a bone. He resets or she resets your bone. It's kind of the idea of what an artist does when they restore an old painting or an old piece of furniture. They rediscover what was already there to begin with, but they restore it to its fullness so that we can see what was always intended. This is what the Jesus story does. Paul knows what he's doing here. This language is loaded language contrasting the Jesus way to the culture of the day. And he invites these first Christians in Ephesus, and I believe he invites us to revolutionize the way we see ourselves and see God and revolutionize the way we see our family. See, regardless of what has happened to you in the past, no matter what your family of origin story might be, you have been designed to write a new story, a better story, a bigger story. You are not a slave to the patterns of your past. Paul would remind you of that. He'd remind me of that. That you actually have a choice in the type of family legacy that you are going to create because you are someone else's future family. But to do that, it takes doing some brave work of exploring the things that are true about us that we may not even realize. It takes the brave and courageous work to do what only we can do to say, how does my family of origin affect my life? The patterns, the decision-making, things that I think are just normal for me, how has that been influenced by the people that raised me, the people that were there in the earliest parts of my upbringing, because the reality is for all of us, you and me, we are all a reflection of or a reaction to our family of origin. You are a reflection of or a reaction to your family of origin. And so if, if, if you're here and, and you're wanting to become a parent or you're about to get married, you are going to discover that this is true. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus. This is true for you. Whether you like it or not, you are a reflection of, meaning you model some of the same tendencies, patterns, decision-making skills, coping mechanisms of your family, or you're a reaction to, where you attempted to perhaps swing the opposite way of what you saw to develop a new strategy because either what you saw you knew wasn't right or healthy, 
or because you just were fed up with it because it was oppressive or controlling or whatever it was. And so you reacted and went a totally different way. All of us are a reflection of or a reaction to our family of origin, and it's not binary. You don't just, like, pick one. We're actually both at multiple times, at different times of the day, in different spaces of our life. I remember when Kate and I were married for about two or three years, we would, you know, come back. Uh, we were living in the Midwest at the time. We'd come back for holidays, and um, I'm the oldest, like I said, in my family. I had a younger sister and a younger brother. And we'd go home, and about two years into marriage, because that's kind of when uh, you really start telling each other the truth. Uh, I remember she, she, uh, she asked me this question, and she's like, um, when we go home to your parents' house, like, seemingly as soon as we walk in and, and like, the bags are put in the room, whatever, like, you disappear and leave me by myself. Like, where do you go? And the answer usually is I'm in the kitchen helping my mom. She's like, why do you do that? And I'm like, didn't know I did that. We don't even realize sometimes how this stuff plays out in our life, but as the oldest, it was much easier for me to be helping rather than present. That was a pattern that I fell into that continued as I became my own family. Perhaps there are spaces in your life out of uh, perhaps pain or, or absence that you have gleaned onto and actually found necessity to find approval from other people. And so that's why you're the best at your job. But you always go home unsatisfied. Perhaps for you, you have this sense of uh, undiagnosed codependency in your relationships because your parents weren't very verbal in their affirmation for you. And so you are desperate for someone else to tell you that you're doing a good job. You don't even realize that that's where that came from. Maybe for you, you have trouble trusting someone else at, at work or in a pursuit of a relationship or a spouse or a partner because you watched your parents' marriage fall apart and so you don't know if you can actually trust another person with the deepest parts of your heart. Perhaps you have spaces in your story that were neglectful, abusive, painful, and so it's caused you to create a wall that is impenetrable. And while it has kept you from getting hurt, it has prevented you from experiencing connection and friendship and intimacy. And all of us have these things in our life. And most of the time, they're a reflection of or a reaction to. Maybe you handle anger the same way your dad did. And you hate that you do it. But you can't seem to help it. Maybe you cope or avoid conflict the same way your mom did, whether that was smoking or drinking or leaving the room or putting on a smiley face or cleaning. But whatever it was, it wasn't talking about it. See, in my family growing up, uh, you know, I had, a, I had a really positive experience growing up with my family. And, and yet one of the reactions to my family that I have is that my dad is really, really good with money. Like he's, he's really intentional. Uh, he's diligent. He's disciplined. He saves a lot. Um, he invests financially and is very, very generous. And I got to watch that. And I'm, I, I have some really positive things that I appreciate about myself that are reflections of that with my dad when it comes to money. Generosity comes easy to me because I watched my dad faithfully invest in where God was moving through our church and other ministries growing up. That was commonplace in our family. But where I'm a reaction to my dad is because my dad is so diligent and 
one might even say frugal as a, as a positive word, uh, there was something that grew in me as a kid that I didn't have all the things that I saw all my friends have. I had friends that they were constantly getting the new gaming system or a new set of rollerblades. Again, it was the 90s. Uh, you know, or a, a new whatever, right? And I wanted it and I didn't get it. And I, I really, to this day, I can't think of a time where my dad's ever responded emotionally to buy something. And yet that was growing in me where I wanted to keep up appearances. My, my dad is not an early adopter when it comes to technology. And for those of us born in the 80s and 90s, keeping up with the newest technology has kind of become a status symbol. And growing up, especially in high school and college, that was a status symbol I didn't have and I wanted it. And so I became a reflection of, in some ways, and a reaction to my dad's financial habits. And even though I know now cognitively as an adult that while my dad's saving and planning was so beneficial to our family, because when he left his job to start his own company and for a year and a half, we didn't really adjust our lifestyle all that much, even though we weren't having a major income into our family. And as an adult, I now know that most of my friends who I wanted their life, I wanted those things that they had, now I know that their parents were overstaying themselves and buying things on credit to appease their son or daughter to hide the fact that mom and dad were fighting and are now divorced. I can cognitively know, hey, now that I see all the pieces, I wouldn't trade it, but that part that I want something when I want it, and so I'm going to go buy it, that's still in me, and my wife is nodding, right? <laughs> that's still there. It's a pattern I have to recognize. I don't feel bad. I don't shame myself for it, but it's important to recognize so I can monitor it and act accordingly. Another example uh, in my family upbringing that was a, a space where I learned how to be a reflection of and even a reaction to is that uh, processing negative emotions, specifically sadness, fear, or insecurity, was not really a part of our family dialogue. Not because my parents were emotionally absent. They were very much not. But, but there were a couple things that actually led to that pattern that as an adult I had to recognize and begin to overcome. One was that I, I was lucky enough. We didn't have anything that we had to choose for this. We were just fortunate that nothing really terribly catastrophic happened during my upbringing. I had all four grandparents up until very recently. Uh, we, we never lost our home. My parents are still married. Like we, a lot of things that just not everybody's story. I was fortunate enough to have a pretty easy, positive upbringing that I'm grateful for, but I never really had to engage a lot of those difficult feelings. So when they showed up unexpectedly as a college student, as a young married person that's trying to become a father, I didn't have the tools to process them. The other part that contributed to it was that we grew up in Orange County, where everything is polished. Your skin, your story, your Lexus, everything is polished. And so we didn't really know that that was seeping into our soul, but your context begins to create who you really are. And on top of that, perhaps the most influential part, is that we were a part of a church community where engaging in those conversations, specifically your feelings, your experiences, your doubts, when it came to God, when it came to yourself, when it came to problems in your life, Subtly, those things were very clearly, although subtly, but clearly communicated to us that those types of things were out of bounds. That counseling 
was a frowned upon practice because you just didn't have enough faith. That specifically men weren't emotional. That you had to play your role and showing fear, insecurity, vulnerability, or not knowing the right answer was viewed as a lack of masculinity. And so that began to seep in over time. And I realized later in a counselor's chair that I was simply playing a role that I didn't even sign up for. And isn't it interesting when you begin to notice these patterns in your life and you see them for what they are and then you stop playing the role you've played perhaps for years, it can be difficult. It can cause tension. People will say, you've changed. Family dynamics can get worse before they get better. That's, that's real. Because the power of our family of origin is something that we, while we often don't notice it, it is incredibly influential in our life. And I bet, like me, there are spaces in your story where you are a flexion of or a reaction to your family of origin. Maybe for you it's that everyone is against you because when you grew up there was an obvious favorite in your family and it wasn't you, it was your sibling. And so you've reacted to that and everybody's welcome or maybe you're a reflection of that and your hustle is actually to gain the approval of your father who might be dead and long gone and you're still running against that ghost. For some of you, perhaps, how you even engage with faith is tempted to be seen as something to wash aside, something to be skeptical of, because while you were raised in a Christian household, you came home from church and saw the ugly underbelly of religiosity. All of us have it. You have something, I have something, and it's important to understand what is so that we can thank God for the things that were positive. I have so many things in my life that was positive, but we can also look at and truly assess, hey, these things, while perhaps well-intentioned, were not, they did not serve me well. But we have to look back before we can move forward. We have to look back and say, what is real because it's affecting you, it's affecting your marriage, it's affecting how you parent, it's affecting how you see God right now, whether you realize it or not. The power of our family of origin cannot be understated. And even Jesus had a family of origin. Sometimes it's easy for us to be like, Jesus was perfect, he got it all figured out. The son of God also became the son of man. And he grew up with imperfect parents and siblings. Like Jesus had to go through puberty and have zits and armpit hair. Like let that sink in for a second. In my view, it makes him more trustworthy that he became so much like you and I that he even had to experience imperfect family dynamics. We read in Matthew 12, Matthew is one of Jesus' closest friends and followers who wrote this down when he remembered that this interaction happened, that Jesus was teaching an incredible message 
much like this one. And he says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers came asking to talk to him. Which again, in first century Jewish culture, Jerusalem very different than Ephesus. The family unit was actually central. Still to this day, Eastern and Middle Eastern family culture is something to be revered. Just like in Jesus' time. And so for someone to say, hey, you're speaking to strangers, but your mom and brother need you. The expectation of Jesus would have been to stop what he's doing, turn and go to the VIP room where his mom would be waiting. But instead, what Jesus says, he replied to the man who told him, who's unnamed, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Which is dangerous with Jesus because sometimes he makes rhetorical questions. You're like, is this, uh, is, are, you, are you actually asking or is this a trap? Um, you asked who was my neighbor a couple of weeks ago, and we got that one wrong. Uh, so uh, I, th- I, think, I think Mary and James and your other brother. And Jesus turns to his people that are listening, his disciples, and said, these are my mother and brother and sister. Whoever does the will of my father, they are my family. And again, don't miss this. Jesus is not squashing the idea of biological family. He's simply putting the perspective of our family and origin in its proper place and elevating our eyes and our souls to a greater spiritual family that can even fill in the gaps and restore the breach and repair the damage that even our biological family has perhaps done to your life and mine and to fix our stories. We know that Jesus wasn't diminishing his family because later when he's on the cross, he looks down at John, the only one who stuck it out with him, and says, John, in his final breath, in excruciating pain, he powers through and says, John, look, it's your mother, pointing to his own mom, Mary, and says, you take care of her, and says to his mom, John's going to take care of you since I'm dying, I'm your oldest son. But in this moment, Jesus is like, who are my mother and brothers? And I can only imagine James, the middle child, goes to Mary and goes, he's still your favorite, right? Because <laughs> everybody happens. But notice who's not mentioned. Notice who's not mentioned in this passage. It's mother, brothers. You know the Christmas story. You know that Jesus had a father named Joseph who's not mentioned in this passage. And it's not because he was working in the woodshed. Most scholars believe that by this point, Jesus' father had died. And as a Jewish boy, as the oldest son, it was his legal opportunity and obligation to care for his mother and younger siblings. Jesus became so much like us that he even walks through the grief of losing a father figure or an important voice in his life. The man who taught him how to make furniture out of wood with his bare hands. The man who probably taught him how to walk, showed him what it was like to be a trustworthy adult, a man after God's own heart, the guy who sat with Jesus when he was disappointed or when he skinned his knee or when someone else might have made fun of him as a child. Jesus knows what it's like to lose a father. And for some of you, that's been your story. Isn't it powerful that the Son of God, the person we believe to be our Savior, said, I'm in this so much with you and for you, that I'll even go through an imperfect family story so that you know I understand. See, in this space, Jesus understands 
that the community that you and I come from impacts the communities that we create. That the community that you come from impacts the communities that you create, the family structures you create, the future families that you may create, the, the situations and relationships you have at work or with your friendships are influenced by the communities you come from. The communities we come from influence the communities that we create. And yet for many of us, I know that this was true for most of my life. We don't even realize that that's true or we've chosen to even potentially ignore it. And so for us to engage this new revolutionary perspective that Jesus invites us into, it's going to take some growing up to do. Even though most of us in this room are adults, there might still be some growing up to do for those of us here when it comes to our family of origin. For some of you, you've been blessed in a community or in a family where you actually are yards down the field when it comes to this, and you should be grateful. And for others of us, this might be brand new information. And and I'll, I'll say this too, as, as a person in my position, sometimes those of us that claim to follow Jesus, we're actually the worst at this. Because it's easy for us to slap a happy sticker on everything. Say, God has a plan, he's going to work it out. Yet, God promises to do what only God can do, but he invites you and me to do what only we can do to explore what is true and what is real. One thing my pastor used to say is you can't leapfrog over the valley of the shadow of death to get to green pastures. You have to go through it. So you have to go through it. To acknowledge what is true, to do the healthy work of saying this is a part of my story. And that takes and it starts with being honest. Being honest that our family of origin even has an effect on us. For some of us, it, it was a, a negative situation, or even if it was a positive situation, but we can so clearly just assume that that's just normal. We don't realize that that has influenced how you see the world. Being honest that our family of origin affects us in the first place is a huge, courageous step. Being honest that the pain that exists in our family story is real. Have you given yourself permission to admit that your family might be imperfect? And that pain was caused, and that doesn't mean they're bad or evil people. It means they're people. And that you have received pain, and that perhaps you have even been a cause of some of that pain. Being honest about your grief process of what could have been, perhaps for some of you, what should have been, and unfortunately in a room this size, things that should not have been that are a part of your story. Trauma, neglect, abuse. And we Christians, we're not immune from those things. To admit that that was wrong, that, that was not okay, and that it was not your fault. It takes courage. It takes courage. Being honest about the fact that like I said before, you may have contributed to the family culture that you've come from, and you certainly are contributing to the family culture you are creating. And if you don't like it, <laughs> you have a part in it. 
to be honest about the roles that we play in our families, the role of helper, the role of mediator, the role of pacifier, the role of problem solver, the role of distraction that we can fall into so easily in our families. And that those roles, those patterns, whether those patterns are of how we respond or more like patterns of abuse or alcoholism or neglect, as we talked about, that those patterns actually exist and we don't pretend that they didn't happen or aren't still even happening. To be honest about the place that you have where you have taken someone else's refusal to grow as an excuse for you to not have to grow yourself. That's a tough one. The places where you have taken someone else's refusal to grow as an excuse for you to not have to grow yourself. Well, my dad's just going to be like that forever, so I'll just be like this. This is how it's always going to be. That's my grandma. Just you know, My family's fine, but every time we go to my grandma's house with holidays or whatever it is, it's just tense. Well, it's just how it is. I don't have anything to do with that. I can't do anything about it. I'll just stay stagnant. Being honest about the spaces in your life where you need the grace of God to come and set right places in you that are broken, that are flawed, that are judgmental, where you've withheld forgiveness. None, none of this is easy. All of it takes courage. And yet the promise of our Heavenly Father who selected you before you did anything to be in his family is that he wants to lavish his grace and goodness on you so you can reflect that goodness and grace to others. It doesn't mean that you put up with things that are unhealthy. It doesn't mean that you pacify or abdicate your responsibility, but it might mean that you extend forgiveness. It might mean that you give another chance. It might mean that you have a hard conversation. It might mean that you step into a counselor's office and learn how to say the phrase, I feel. It might mean drawing a hard boundary. Saying until we can solve this, we can't be in relationship the same way anymore. It might mean breaking up with them because you got into that relationship to fulfill a pattern that was unhealthy from your past. And as long as you're there, that will never get fixed. This is real, next-level stuff. And yet there's an author, a guy named Peter Scavero, who's a pastor of New Life Church, who wrote this book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And he writes in this book perhaps one of the most powerful phrases when it comes to those of us who want to have healthy relationships with our family of origin and who believe that actually that's one of the most beautiful pictures of the gospel to our culture. It says this, it says, one of the greatest gifts that we, those of us that are starting to follow Jesus, can give our world is to be a community of emotionally healthy adults who love well. This is going to take, he says, the power of God and a commitment to learn and grow and break with the unhealthy, destructive patterns that might go back generations in our families and cultures. It's going to take both. 
You can't just will your way out of it. You can't just try harder to fix it. It's going to take the power of God. And for those of you who, like me, might have been raised in a more religious context, you can't just pray it away either. You've got to go back in order to move forward. You've got to explore. You've got to move the rocks and look at all the yucky dirt that's underneath them. And there might be some shadows and some worms and some scary stuff under there. So don't do it alone. Do it in community. But don't skip it. Because this is the work that it takes for us to become healthy individuals and a healthy community so that the communities that we create reflect the best parts of the communities that we came from and they don't hold the destructive patterns that so many of us have been pushed on into our life or even been ingrained into our psyche. And so every week of this series, as we build these relationships, because this is so important, we're actually going to give you some homework. And so it's not just because August is now the beginning of school and all the students are like, ugh, and all the parents are like, yes, right? But this is such important stuff that we want to make it accessible because perhaps you're here and I talked to somebody after this, like, this is big, this feels heavy, this can begin to feel overwhelming. And, and, and that might be true. So we want to make it approachable for you. And so as you leave, you're going to get this piece of paper. And I would encourage you to walk through this exercise this week to find some quiet space and spend half an hour. It's called the genogram of your family. And what it does is it helps you create the map to begin to understand. It's not going to fix anything, but to begin to understand what has influenced who you've become. It starts up here with your grandparents and then your parents, and you can kind of fill in, you know, the circles and squares of people in your family maybe you've created or you even have grandkids that are a part of this. And then there's some, some you know, clues at the bottom that kind of determine what kinds of relationships that those were. And, and for some of you, doing this exercise to say, hey, that relationship was unhealthy. Hey, that relationship had some abuse factors to it. Hey, that relationship was great, but it had this manipulative religiosity attached to it. Hey, that relationship was incredible. I'm so grateful for that person in my life. It is going to make you a healthier person. And for some of you, it's going to mean there's a phone call sometime this week to say, Mom, Dad, thank you. Or to say, Mom, Dad, I'm sorry. Or to say, Mom, Dad, I forgive you. Or to say, Mom, Dad, I need help. And, and for some of you, this may move you into a counselor's office. And I want to tell you this. There is no shame and going to counseling. We will not be the kind of community that says you only go to counseling when you're really messed up because your pastor's standing on stage saying, I only learned this through counseling. You take your car when the check engine light comes on to an expert. Many of us take our technology when it's broken every other week to an expert. Don't miss this. Your soul is far more valuable than your car or your cell phone or your computer or your home theater system. Do not take those things to a trained, certified professional and leave uncovering the reality of who you are to chance. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Trust a professional. 
We have incredible resources that we can offer to you. But sometimes it just starts by saying, okay, I'm going to take an honest look at what's real. Take an honest look at what's real. And see if God doesn't do something in your story simply by saying and acknowledging, my family of origin affects my current reality. See, the thing I love about Jesus is that hours before he would be betrayed and murdered, ultimately to give his life for my sin and my brokenness and yours as well, is he gathered this elevated picture of family that he had created. The thing that he had taught people for three years and opened the doors and invited anyone to come and be a part of. He grabbed these 12 people that had followed him around the closest for those three years. And these 12 guys were up in this room and just hours before he would go to the cross, he showed them what true relationship looks like. That in true godly relationship, there is no hierarchy. That the leader becomes the servant and eventually becomes the sacrifice. And so he washes their feet and serves them a meal and says something unexpected that this bread and this wine actually represents my body and my blood that will be broken and poured out for you so that you can have a relationship that's reunited with the family of God. This is how this is possible. And in that room was his best friend who he would trust his mom to in just a few short hours, the Apostle John. In that room was a man who in a few short hours would deny that Jesus was ever even a part of his circle and would lead to Jesus' arrest, Peter. And in that room was Judas, who had already betrayed him and turned him over to the authorities. And Jesus equally served all of them without favoritism. And so what that means is, is that there's room for you and room for me at that table that all of us are invited. And that for those of us that have decided to follow Jesus, that this is an act of remembrance and an act of worship. To say, God, I understand that on my own, I was so far removed from your goodness, way more than just being outside of the city in ancient Ephesus. I was from east to the west, and yet you came and found me and chose me and adopted me in and placed me in a position reception of your incredible lavish love you didn't have to do that god did that for you and for those of you that might be here and, and, and you're not sure what you think about jesus and you're exploring this idea of faith i want you to understand something that this table might be how you begin that relationship say hey i get it now that god did something for me to invite me into his family and i've been hustling and running and trying to prove myself to appease my family of origin. And yet, all along, God says, you're welcome in my family. And that's going to revolutionize your life. And you're going to leave here today a different person because you were here. And so you're invited to come. We believe it is open to everyone so much there's even gluten-free and gluten-full bread. We got both. So pick your poison. But you are welcome at the communion table because Jesus, who went through, grew up in an earthly family so that he could go to the cross, give his life to forgive your sins and mine, 
and to welcome you into the family of God says you're invited. So I would invite you to stand if you're able. We would love to just pray for you because I can tell that the Holy Spirit is doing something in some of your lives right now. And I don't want you to skip it. I don't want you to walk out of here and just be the same person you were an hour ago. But to receive the fact, the reality that God selected you and made himself available for you to choose him back and to receive his love and grace. So let's pray together. If you would, would you open your hands to God? I'm open to what it is that you want to do in my life and my heart even right now as we pray together. God, thank you that you are a good, good father that went above and beyond to make a way for us to be included in your family. God, for some of us, that's there are words in our brain right now that are fighting against that truth, and I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, gently but powerfully sear that reality into our soul. We are chosen by God. Not because of anything that we have done and not that we could do anything to undo that, but because of your glorious grace. And God, your grace is glorious. When we understand what you've saved us from, it should cause us to sing and to shout and to clap and to realize that while we were hopeless without you, we have every hope because of you, Jesus. And so for those of us that have destructive patterns to overcome, for those of us that need courage to offer forgiveness or to have hard conversations that include boundaries, for those of us that don't even realize the fact that the absence of our parent and the grief of that loss or that neglect has caused us to see you inaccurately. Would we come home to you? Would we come to the table to receive your body and receive your blood, not as a religious activity, but as restoration for our soul? We would start a new story, a better story, one that invites and involves us in your spiritual family because, God, you, you chose us. We don't have to be afraid anymore. You tell us we're your children. We're so grateful. In your name we pray. Amen. So as you're ready, would you come up and, and our team is here to serve you, to take the elements, the bread and the cup, and then as you feel led, participate and have it be an act of worship. As always, our prayer team is back by the prayer wall. They'd love to pray for you or over you if something that we talked about today brought up some challenges or, or maybe space in your story where you, you realize that there's some work for you to do. Don't skip that. You can't do it alone. Let someone speak the name of Jesus into that area of your life. And let's sing out. We're going to sing some incredible lyrics that, if, again, if we were to grasp them, it would revolutionize your life. And they're true. Not because we're singing them, but because it's what God says about you. It's what God says about himself. So let's worship as we receive communion, as we pray, and as we sing.
surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemies till all my fears are gone. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. From my mother's womb, you have chosen me. Love has called my I've been born again to my family. Your blood flows through my veins. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I'm no child of God. Lift that up. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I'm no
child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God.
come to church. I know some of you are here, especially if this is your first time, you're like, whoa, that was a lot. I didn't expect to go down that deep into the rabbit hole. But friends, the truth is, is that God is in the business of restoration. There is no divorce. There is no loss. There is no abuse. There is no addiction. There is nothing that you or I can face in our past, in our present, or in our future that is too big for God's miraculous love to overcome and to completely rebuild. That is truth. And that is why we sing. And that is why we have hope. And that is why we gather like this in community. And so our hope is that you will join us next week. Whether you've been coming for years or whether this was your first time, we hope that you'll come and continue this journey as we look into all that God has in store for us in this area of our tribes, of our family, of our friendships. Because he has good things for his children. He is a giver of good and perfect gifts. In fact, one of the things we're committed to as a church family for the year of 2018 is that every time you and I gather, every time you and I sit in these seats, we as a church commit to giving a dollar to various partners around our city, around our world, and sometimes, truth be told, within the very needs of this community. We want to be the kind of church that, just like in this last week or two, that when someone comes to us and says, I need a roof over my head, or I need some money to make rent this month, that we are a church that is ready and waiting in the wings to say, all right, this family's got your back. We're going to walk with you. We're not going to just put money and a Band-Aid over it, but we're going to support you and be your family through it. That is what God calls the local church to be, and that's what I am so proud that we get to be a part of building together. And so, friends, we hope that you'll join us next week. As I said, 9 or 11, we'll be here same time, same place next week, and we will be praying for you this week that God would be restoring every area of your life with his love and his power. So we love you, and we'll see you next week.
good reason lost all of my love